So this morning, as I was kind of prepping, uh, I say prepping, I'm going through my prep that I had done. It sounds like I started prepping this morning. That wasn't the case. I did, however, find that God opened up some stuff that I really wasn't expecting to do. So what became, what was a one-part message became a two-part message. And just last week, as Emmanuel and I were, were chatting through some of the things with regards to our prayer and fasting weekend, um, he was just saying it'll be good to do an introduction to it and set the tone for the, for the, the week ahead. And I think it's such a, a valid point. And just for a moment, I want us to picture what the world would be like if every person understood their identity in God, if every person walked in the fullness of the call to which they have been called, free from competition, with a supernatural confidence, anointing, and capacity to do what God had called them to do. And every single Christian was operating in this context. What would the world look like? And I think it would probably look vastly different from what it does at the moment. Now, I want to go through and break open a passage of Scripture, and, I, and there's quite a lot to it. So I'm going to read a, a portion of it, and, and we're going to kind of condense what we, what we break open today, and probably next week we'll go through a bit more. But Ephesians 4 is the passage of Scripture that speaks about the fivefold gifting. And it's known as the fivefold gifting passage of Scripture. However, the title to this um, Scripture is Unity in the Body of Christ. And yet we use this as a breaking open of spiritual gifts, and that's true. And there's, there's something of that that is so vitally important. But it often comes to the detriment of what the, the essence of the scripture is, which is unity. And for me this morning, I want to speak of unity of the body of Christ and understanding our role in that. So often when I sit and build Lego with our girls, and you get this instruction manual that's like 400 pages long. There's only like three or four pieces that are mentioned on each page. And what you do is you start compiling these little pieces together here, and these pieces together here, and these pieces together here. And eventually you build this thing which looks like the box. Well, hopefully if you follow the instructions correctly. But each piece has been created with a purpose and a place to fit in to build this big picture. And if you put one piece in, in, incorrectly, it's amazing how you can carry on building and all of a sudden you get to a point where you can build no further and you have to go and you have to break down to find out where you put that piece where it was meant to be on the two little things, you put it on the third one and now everything is out of kilter. And today I want us to focus on the significance of us as an individual piece thinking during worship of a book called Captain in the Cauldron. It's a book of John Smith's um, life story, former Springbok captain, former World Cup winner. Now, if you know him as a rugby player, you will know that he was not the best hooker, let alone the best player in South Africa. Yet he was chosen to lead. Why? Because of the significance of his presence on the field, took those who were better than him and made them even better. His mere presence there raised the bar amongst the players around him. He would go and right before a big game and write an individual letter to each one of his players and put it under their hotel room door. So when they woke up in the morning, there was a personalized encouragement from him to his team so that they knew what was expected of them the next day. They knew what their role was and they knew that the value that they added to the team. 
Now, a leader like that starts to ignite and bring about a supernatural confidence in people. Unfortunately, what we land up seeing often, even in church ministry, is a competition with those around us. Now, competition always leads to a winner and a loser. And often what happens if you keep winning, you become lofty and you start backing off because I've got this. And often if you keep losing, what happens is you start to think, I'm not worthy. I've got no value to add. And you start backing off. And both consequences are people aren't operating in the fullness of what they've been called to because competition actually breaks down and doesn't build up. Now, I'm not saying that all competition is bad, but I'm saying when we're competing with one another and we are trying to outdo, we have a problem. So I was chatting to a friend of mine this week. He leads City Life Church in Umschlinger, and we're talking about church meetings. And now, obviously, we're praying this week into vision for this year, and the purpose of it is, Lord, what is the role of Adventure Church in Palm Lakes, in Tinley Manor, in, in the, the Dolphin Coast East? area into KZN, into South Africa and beyond. So what is our role and who are the people that you have in store for us? And as he was sharing as a seasoned church leader, it's amazing how you get to meet people and they bring such simple truths that blow your mind. And this was one of them. He says he filters every single one of their meetings through six principles. And, and they are, the role of the church is to prepare the bride. So that is what our role is, to prepare the bride for Christ. How do we do that? By making disciples. How do we make disciples? By planting New Testament churches. How do we plant New Testament churches? By raising leaders. How do we raise leaders? By establishing a strong priesthood. And how do we establish a strong priesthood? By reaching the lost. So he says every single one of his meetings he filters through, is it fulfilling at least one of these avenues? And if not, why are we doing it? So often what we do in churches is we have a liturgy that is a blueprint of how church is expected to run. We look at it and say, to be a church, you have to have this, 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 and this. And it's a tick box of these are our ministries and these are what we do. And once we've got all these ministries in place, so we are now established as a church. And he's saying, but the essence of that is fundamentally flawed. Actually, what is our role? What is our mission? What is our mandate? And from there... Who are we going to reach? It doesn't help having a men's ministry if that's not what we've been called to do, just because it's nice to have. But if there's life in it, and if it brings value, and if it's part of a discipling process, if it is raising up leaders, if it is walking into the fullness of our call, by all means. So we're going to be praying into what meetings we're going to be doing. And, and this thing has struck me because what happens is it starts to check our hearts as to why we do what we do. So Ephesians 4, and I want to filter through these six principles. I want to filter through our role as individuals. And, and how does our role in individuals add to Adventure Church? And how does it add to the bride of Christ, how do we just add value in where we are? So I'm going to read from verse 1, and I'm going to go all the way through to verse 16, even though we today are going to stop at verse 8. But it says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope 
that belongs to your core, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Love that, that last statement. When each part is working properly, makes the whole body grow. So when each one of us is walking in the fullness of our calling, in the fullness of our identity, it's amazing how it raises the bar. John Smith's on the field led a team, and they operated at better than their best because he was there. And if there were people competing with him to be captain because they were a better team or a better player, the team would have suffered. But he was appointed to lead in that, in that capacity. I, I, if you guys know me, you'll know that one of my favorite things is the Father Heart of God. And the reason for that is I believe we can track everything that is broken in the world back to identity. And identity in the context of two revelations. The context of the revelation of who God is as Father and who we are as child. Because if one of those is tainted or both of them are tainted, we get to walk in a broken understanding of what that means. Why do I say that? Well, if we don't think God is a good God, but we recognize ourselves as his children, what's the point? And if we don't recognize ourselves as children, I often say when I walk into a school, um, our kids' friends often refer to me by association to my daughters. So they'll say, oh, there goes Libby's dad, or there goes Kayla's dad. If they recognize me as a good father, as a good husband, but I'm Libby's dad and Kayla's dad, if Libby refers to me, there's Kayla's dad. And she doesn't recognize the, the significance of her identity in me being her dad. Well, then what's the point of that either? Because then we don't walk into the fullness of our identity. And all the things that are broken in the world today, I believe we can trace back to a fundamentally flawed understanding of identity. Now, the enemy does this, and, and, and for me, there's two relationships that God reveals himself to, and we've already looked at the one in terms of being the bride of Christ. We look, we're seeing about that today. But it's marriage and it's father. We are his children, he is father, and we are the bride to the son. And what are the two most attacked relationships in the world? Fathers and marriage. 
it's not a coincidence because if the enemy can bring a fundamentally flawed perspective of those two relationships, we battle to walk in the fullness of what they mean to us in how God reveals his relationship to us. So with this identity, it's a royal identity. The Bible says we are a royal priesthood. He is the king and we are in a kingdom. Seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all this will be added unto you, Matthew 6. So there's a kingdom that we fulfill a part in. So with this royal identity comes a royal responsibility. And we have a royal responsibility, a royal mandate that's been given to each one of us that comes with plans and purposes that were uniquely designed for our life that has purpose for us to walk into that makes the world a better place. So I want to kind of filter through this when we look through the scripture. David Livingston said, why is it when we get commissioned by an earthly king we count it a privilege, but when we get commissioned by a heavenly king we count it a sacrifice? We've got to recognize that our responsibility in this is an absolute privilege to walk in the fullness of the identity that has been bestowed upon us. So it says here in verse 1, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Each one of us has a role to play and each one of us has a calling. The call is unique to us as an individual and we are urged to walk in a manner worthy of that call. In verse 2, it kind of expounds on what that means, and it says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. How do we maintain unity? Is It doesn't mean that we have to suppress our role. It doesn't mean we have to suppress the value that we add. We get to be confident in the value that we add. We have to be confident in the value that we add because we've got a purpose and a role to play. But it's not in competition to. So what we do is we're confident in our ability and we celebrate the ability of what other people bring to the table. We celebrate the gifts, the uniqueness of our gift and the uniqueness of their gift. And when those two Lego pieces start to stick together in the right place, what happens is we start to build and we build well. So it's amazing that the, the manner worthy of the call for each one of us is the same, even though the call is different. So what does that tell me is that the hierarchy is non-existent. There's not a hierarchy in call. Imagine if every person thought it was important that they should lead a church. We would have hundreds and thousands and millions of single member churches. There's no value in that. So what we do is we don't bring about a hierarchy. Now, the, the irony of the scripture, and I'll, I'll break open a little bit more of it later, is that this passage of scripture has led to the most disunity and hierarchy in church leadership. And the premise of it is actually bringing about a supernatural unity. In verse 3 to 7, it says there, that we are eager to maintain the unity. So we're eager. There's a, an intentional attitude towards unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So there's one body, but even in that, there's a singleness, a oneness that God is highlighting to us in this passage of Scripture. 
If you go read 1 Corinthians 12, which speaks about the spiritual gifts, again it speaks about the oneness, the oneness, the oneness. Why? Because Paul was speaking to the Greeks, and the Greeks had many gods and a god for everything. And he's saying, whoa, 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 understand for us, in our understanding, even though it's one god, it's a triune god, but there's one, there's a, a oneness in it. There's a beautiful um, theological term called perichoresis. And, and, and it, it refers to the deflection of each one of the Trinity to the other two. And it's described as a dance between the Trinity in deflecting value and importance from each one to the other two. So the, the Son deflects to the Father and to the Spirit. And the Spirit deflects to the Father and the Son. And the Father deflects to the Son and the Spirit because they've got this, this ability in their oneness to elevate and to, to, to honor and to celebrate what the other two bring. The enemy, however, fell as a result of not willing to be able to withstand his role in this thing. He wanted to compete with the Father and landed up causing all the evil that we know was actually saying, I'm not prepared to accept the role that I've been given. I want your role. Jesus says it's not for him to know things set by the Father's authority. The Son recognizes the authority of the Father, but the devil couldn't accept the fact that the Father had an authority. And he fell as a result of that. So here we are, one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord and faith and baptism, one God and Father of, in all. Psalm 133 says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It's like the precious oil on the head running down the beard of Aaron. Now the oil there is referring to the anointing that was in Aaron as the high priest was anointed with oil. So it refers to the anointing. It says running down the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. You're going to know that Hermon, Mount Hermon, is 407 kilometers away from Mount Zion. So these things are like way apart. And it says here that unity is like the dew of Hermon which falls on the mountains of Zion. So the dew is the same. There's a unity even though there's a separation. It's the same as the oil pouring on his head runs down to his robe. It's one oil that covers his whole body. Even though there's a separation, there's the same anointing. There's a unity in that. And it says there, for there the Lord has commanded a blessing. Life forevermore. So when we operate in unity, what happens is there's a blessing that's, that's commanded. And that blessing brings about anointing, and it speaks of something of God's favor in that circumstance. In verse 4, it says there that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your core. The word hope there is alpis, that is the Greek word. And it means joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. So the call to which each one of us has been called has a hope that leads to a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. This is referring to the Great Commission and that of Matthew 28, 16, 20, Mark 16, Acts 1, 8, 
Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You'll be my witnesses, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. It's referring to that. And in it, in each one of our calls, irrespective of what it is, there is a hope that we are sowing into an unbelieving world. And that hope is of a joyful and confident expectation of eternal salvation. That's the role we fulfill. Whether it's serving tea or coffee, whether it is leading a church, whether it is being in business, being in politics, whether it is um, being at school or in university and fulfilling a call, whether it's a seasonal call or it's a long-term call, our role and responsibility is to confidently sow a joy and confident expectation of those around us for an eternal salvation. Verse 7 says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Now this is where things start to become unhinged, often in the church, is that when it starts speaking of being given in accordance with measure, we start to, to measure what God's given, and we start to compare, and it, and it breaks down. Grace is defined as undeserved or unmerited favor, Versus mercy, which is a pardon from a miserable consequence. And we see grace operate pre-salvation. We see grace operate post-salvation in two different ways. On the one hand, pre-salvation we see an unmerited favor, which is Jesus dying for our sins. And as a result of that grace, he offers us mercy, which is a pardon from a miserable consequence. And in that grace is given in accordance with the measure of the need for the grace for us to obtain salvation. We see this with the woman in Luke 7 who's busy washing Jesus' feet with her tears and the disciples start to, or the, I think it was the Pharisees or someone rebukes her and he gives the example of if someone owes you 500 denarii and someone owes you 50 denarii and you write the debt off, who will be more grateful? And they say, well, the one who had the bigger debt and he says you've answered correctly. In the same way, she loves much because she's been forgiven much. There was a measure of grace poured out for her that's potentially different to the measure of grace poured out for someone else. But it was required to bring her to a place of salvation. But post-salvation, as brought about in Ephesians 4, there's a grace for our core. So it says here that grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift, which is the call that we've been given. And that grace, that favor, is an equipping for capacity, strength, anointing, provision, everything that is needed for us to work out our call. And it's got nothing to do with yours is more important than mine. It's what God's saying is this is the journey and I'm equipping you for the journey to bring about your call so that you can work it out and see the fullness of it when, when the time comes and we get called home. When we've run our race and we get called home, we have been equipped with everything that is required for us to work that out. So there's one body with many parts, and we often refer to it as, if you're a foot and I'm an eye, I want to break it down even further and say, if you're a cell in a foot, and I'm a cell in an eye, or a cell, the body is so much more complex than just breaking it down into six or seven parts. It's hundreds and thousands of parts, but each one of us has a role to play. And each one of us is compelled to do it well, and walk into the fullness of it. Now, the, I'm hoping that as a result of this, you're not going to think there's so much work to be done 
and overwhelmed and feel it's a message of condemnation, please, condemnation is not of God, and it's not something that uh, is in adds any value to anyone. But what I am wanting to do is I'm wanting to stir us up and recognize that there is worth, there is value, there is purpose over each one of us. And we have the privilege of being called by a king to say, actually, you add value to the world. And in you, there are things that I want people to, to be blessed by. So it's not a message of condemnation, but it's a message of hope and stirring and of, of just us recognizing that we have a part to play in something so much bigger than us. Verse 8 says that, um, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. We have been given gifts with purpose. Each one of us has a role to play. So, as we go into this week, I'm trusting that we will pray for God ideas and not good ideas. I'm trusting that we'll pray for our call, our purpose. How does that add to the body? How do we stir? How do we grow? How do we impact? Jen and I were talking last week about some of the NPOs and just how there's been a stirring in our hearts for some of the people who are lost and broken. There are so many different places. We can't reach all of them. But Lord, which are the ones that you have for us? So as we, we end off and go into just a, a time where we get to just encourage and minister to one another and maybe share some prophetic words to pray together, um, potentially bring prayer requests as well if you have something that you want us to pray into. I want to end off with a quote that I read this week, and I don't know who the quote is from, um, but it says, I don't know what lies ahead, but I do know it will be an adventure. I don't know what lies ahead for each one of us, but I do know that it will be an adventure. And God's got incredible things in store for each one of us. Kai, for you, God's got incredible things in store for you. Place and a purpose, value to add. What an incredible privilege it is. I just love the fact that God is so intentional. So with our royal identity comes a royal responsibility. And it's not heavy. It's not bad. John 15 says, By this you prove to be my disciples, that you go and bear much fruit. But a few verses before that, you guys have heard me share this before. It says, If you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. If our works come as a result of our relationship and as a byproduct of who God is in us, it's amazing how easy it is to walk that road out. It doesn't come with a burden. It doesn't break down our, our energy levels. It, it brings about a supernatural strength when our eyes are focused on the king and his kingdom. Tyron Daniel, who leads NCMI, he often says, we've got to keep the main one, the main thing. And that's Jesus. Set our eyes on him. And let him bring about capacity. Let him bring about the knowledge and wisdom and discernment and opportunity. And then we trust for a confidence in it. So my challenge to each one of us is let's be confident in the call that we've been given. If we don't understand the call, let's just be faithful in doing what we're doing. It's easier to turn a ship that's moving than a ship that's standing still. So let's be intentional with loving people. We know that that is something that we can do. So... 
Yeah, Lord Jesus, I just thank you, Father, for these people. I thank you for each one of us, Lord, the call that we've got, the grace that you've given us to, to work that out, the favor that leads to us being able to fulfill this insurmountable task. Ephesians 5.1 comes after this. It says, There be imitators of God as dearly beloved children. It's our identity as dearly beloved children that qualifies us for this insurmountable thought of imitating God. Lord, I thank you, Father, for our identity. I pray for a supernatural revelation of who we are in you and who you are in the bigness and the scope of the, the glory of who you are, Lord Jesus. May you be magnified in our thinking. I pray for humility, Lord. I pray for joy. I pray for grace. I pray for peace. I pray that we'll be intentional with bringing about unity in everything that we do. I had a picture this week of the enemy sowing disunity and us reaping unity. And the picture was of a field, like a, a, a farm where they, there was a harvest, and, they, and, and what happens is they were sowing seeds. And the enemy came in in the middle of the night, and he started to sow seeds that were weeds to come and choke out the seeds of the farmer. And I just had a picture of us on hands and knees picking out the, the seeds that were weeds and sowing seeds that were these super crops. And the next day, when, when the enemy came to inspect what he was reaping, the harvest, the crops were more bountiful than they ever could have been. And I just had this picture of the enemy standing there thinking, what on earth has happened? But we get to sow seeds. We get to pick out seeds that the enemy has sown. So I just pray for that now over each one of us in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.